all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 253 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the year of consulship of Vulasunius and Claudius episode of the SLS Cast, because it turns out that there was a common year starting on a Saturday of the old Julian calendar, which at the time was known as the year of consulship of Volusianus and Claudius. That year was 253. And with that wonderful little bit of weird-ass Roman knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident convalescing Sony employee. (laughs) Slightly less Gimpy Tim. I can now put pressure on the foot, which is is nice. Pressure. Under pressure. I'm the real, I'm the straight-up G-I-M-P. You know, my dad is having some trouble with some tendons in in his right foot and uh which he got running actually and so he has been in a boot for a while and they actually shifted him to an air cast and it literally is like you okay now do you remember when you were like Nine or ten years old, Tim. Mm -hmm. Remember back to the halcyon days of the Game Boy Color and Pokemon Red Yellow, right? Yeah, I I, I didn't have it. I didn't have any of that. But 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 go on. I I I had I had rich (laughs) friends that did. Oh, very good, very good. And do you remember commercials for the Reebok pump shoe? Had the little basketball emblem on the tongue, and you could you know. Right, and you could play doctor with your foot. That's what I have, <laughs> and that's what he has. It, his, <laughs> his, so he can literally puts the cast on, and then he puts his foot inside of his shoe, and then he has this little tool that he sets on the inside of the cast, and he actually pumps up this little air sac, and it helps go right under the arch of his foot to support his tendon. So that's what I was going to ask. Do you have one of those now? Here, let me uh, let me provide some proof. Try not to break my foot while doing it, but here here it is. Yes, that's it. That's the sound. Yes, we're making memories together. I, I feel like I'm bonding with your dad. <laughs> I guess I'm gonna have to go break my foot now or something, <laughs> so that uh, I can have the Tim Dad memories. Although mine, the thing with the air pump shoes, the air cast or whatever, the air boot, I think is what mine's called. It comes with these, like, you can put these little inserts in it. And I think I had the inserts in the wrong spot because it <laughs> turned all my toes purple and gray. Oh, And they're that still slightly sexy. purple. <laughs> that sounds sexy. Let me tell you. I know that if I had a foot fetish, I wouldn't anymore. Good job. You're welcome. I mean, I think that took care of 75% of our listeners right there. <laughs> we, uh, we, uh, we supply, we give a lot to that foot fetish crowd. <laughs> Sometimes we find ourselves hurting because we give so much. And we say, stop it. Stop it. We'll treasure this forever. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes. Thank you, Bill Murray and Scrooge. 
Ooh, it is that time of the year, almost. You bring up Scrooged? Just about. Does it feel like fall, at least, over there now? No. Really? Uh, Well, okay, so over the weekend, we had our family reunion. And normally we have our family reunion in Sealy, as I have talked about, because uh, it, it will San Filippi proper at the Stephen F. Austin State Park, uh, because that's where our branch of the Quentin family is from. But due to the flooding and everything because of Harvey, uh, they closed the park yet again. So and, and and there was flooding last year as well. And so we skipped last year and we're like, look, we just can't skip again. So we kind of threw something together really fast and we actually ended up out in Fredericksburg. And so we're up in the hill country where all the wineries are and oh my God, it's like the Vegas Strip. But just wineries. It's like winery after winery after winery. They had winery tour buses of varying sizes and degrees. Um, but yeah, so we ended up out there. Was that your first time going to Fredericksburg? Yes. I've been really? to, I've been as, I've been out to Blanco before. Yeah. Um, cause I have family that lives out there, but I've never actually gone beyond that. Oh. And so yeah, there's this wonderful little jellystone, um, camping park. That's out there, and we had a great time staying there. The, the kids got to meet Yogi Bear, and um, we, we yeah we took the whole family, packed the dog, all of our families met up there, and then we actually went to LBJ State Park instead, and had our actual family reunion proper there at the state park. LBJ was born in the town right by Fredericksburg. Correct. It, yes, he was born in Johnson City. But, uh, yeah, so it was beautiful. Oh, man, the facilities out there are beautiful. It's right on the Perdinales River. Uh, I mean, super gorgeous, and we had a great time. And it was so wonderful because it was actually relatively cool. You know, on Friday, it was uh, in the low 60s. And on Saturday, the high was like 68 or 69. So it kind of drifted up and it was comfortable all day. And then it cooled back down again. Um, and then, of course, as we come out of the hill country, coming home on Sunday. And as soon as we get out of the hill country, we're out by Brenham. Yep, it's all 89 degrees again. I'm like, fuck this. I hate this shit. So, yeah. And it's still in the 80s and stuff out here in Houston. I'm sad. And so begins the great coin toss of the weather patterns for Houston, Texas for Christmas. Because you never know. It could either be really hot, humid, muggy, or it could be freezing cold and rainy. So This is true. My significant other hates going there. No, I mean, not, not really hates, but she always has to overpack because she never knows what to bring. Okay. I'm sorry. I, I know in today's day and age, this is a dangerous statement, but, um, I feel, at least in my experience, that, uh, the women in my life have always loved to overpack just so they can have an excuse to have cool stuff to wear. I mean, if we want to blame it on the weather, that's fine, but I feel like that's a bit of a cop out. Keep in mind, folks, this is the same, virtually the same thing Matt said last week when we were talking about who planted the uh, the sex toy in our closet. <laughs> the head yeah, honcho, right. the super head honcho. That's right. How, and, and how was the episode received over there in Timland? It was fine. I mean, we've put on our, our detective caps. We tried to figure this out, and we honestly couldn't. In fact... She took out the trash can, the trash yesterday, because I, I still can't. 
with the Superhead Honcho on the bottom of the bag, and you can see the outline of it. And I could just slowly see it pulsating goodbye as it was going. <laughs> you know, we will never know the true history of the Superhead Honcho. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That is truly awesome. So that was my fun over the weekend. And I imagine you're just kind of making do at the moment as you continue to recover. Exactly. Yeah. N- not much going on. I-, I have another week. Well, that'll be cool. And then we'll, you know, by the time we get to talk uh, about Thanksgiving and and uh, the wonderful family the family movie we have planned for that week. <laughs> <laughs> it's a family movie. Yes. Nothing says happy Thanksgiving like the Kama Rouge in a very depressing genocide. That's right. Not, nothing brings the family together more than Pol Pot. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. That's next week, folks. Don't worry. Anyway, I guess uh, should we go ahead and look into the old mail sack? Check that mail sack, check it good. Check that mail sack, like you should. Oh no! We suck again! (laughs) Yep, that's about right. That's just about (laughs) right. Spoiler alert, it's probably going to be the same for next week too. (laughs) Just we might have a turkey gobble instead of a... Oh, that would be fun. Yeah. That would be, hey, that would be a perfect time to insert my infamous Thanksgiving catchphrase. So, we'll, I cannot we'll wait until maybe you bring it up before we record next week's episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we can work something out. All right. Well, as usual, folks, we really do want to hear from you. So please, please, please uh, send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. And if you would like to follow us on Twitter, we would love to hear from you there as well. You can do that by following us at the SLScast. So how about we do some news? Haven't done that for a while. You want to do some news? Yeah, let's do it. Here we go, folks. It's the news. And first up, actually only up from me, all the way from GameSpot.com by way of Dan Audi. Justice League star Jason Momoa confirms he will star in The Crow reboot. That's right, folks. You heard that right. Last month it was reported that the long-awaited reboot... Well, I don't know about long-awaited. Oh, sorry, let me just go ahead and read this here. Last month, it was <laughs> reported that the long-awaited reboot of cult 90s comic book movie The Crow, currently known as The Crow Reborn, will start pre-production early next year. Aquaman star Jason Momoa has been attached to the project for some time, but a series of delays had left it unclear as to whether he would still star. However, Momoa has now all but confirmed his involvement. The actor took to Instagram to post an to post a good lord to post an illustrated picture of the character of the crow with the caption addressed to director corn hardy it reads quote i've been waiting for so long at corn hardy let's do this brother end quote in response hardy posted an image of himself and momoa with the caption quote two-headed monster croc end quote there all right so Thoughts. Me, I still just, I don't, I I really, really don't think 
that we need a reboot of The Crow. I mean, The Crow was made for the MTV audience of the early 90s, pretty much. It was. And and it was based off of a graphic novel. And we've seen the whole comic book genre, the graphic novel, graphic novel genre, completely take off in film. And I really think that The Crow should be a celebration of the roots of that and remain as such. And don't get me wrong, there's already been sequels and stuff. I wouldn't even necessarily have a problem with it being something along the lines of just a sequel that's taken place years later in canon. I mean, if you're really that desperate to make another Crow movie, then do so. But there just really doesn't need to be a reboot. Well, there's The Crow of... already has... I'm sorry, go ahead, sir. Well, I mean, there's like a lot of factors to The Crow movie that makes it unique. Not only did it come out at a very interesting time for the youth, but it was the grunge scene. It was the MTV culture. Think about the music in the movie. It was the early 90s alternative rock. Uh, or was or would it be considered hard rock? I guess alternative hard rock. No, I, that I was definitely... I, w- I would say that was... I don't know. It was in the weird bridge. I don't think you could fully say that it's grunge, but you could certainly say it was alternative. Yeah. I think that would be a fair label, you know, because grunge is definitely 90, 91, really hits its stride in 92. By 95, we're thoroughly into the major heyday of grunge, but also kind of getting into post-grunge breaking into alternative and then everything kind of falls into that and when you have bands that come across i mean you've got stone temple pilots for the crow you've got uh the cure um my life with the thrill kill cults uh, there's there's a lot of different aspects to the types of bands that were in that were involved in the soundtrack so i think alternative would probably be the best label. I'm sorry. Can you tell that I care about this a lot? Because I do. And <laughs> Well, I'm just like, what kind of music are they going to use now? I mean, there's not new... Or we're going to use the newer Cure songs? I mean, it's just like... It's a, it's a product of its time that works still now because it was well-made at the time. Just because an older movie was well-made around the time when you were a kid or when you were younger, you know, during your most formative years... It doesn't mean that we have to remake it or redo it. You know, I, I agree with you, though. It needs to be a sequel, at least. Yeah, if they do have to reboot it all the way, then they may as well go ahead and use The Cure again, but they must use Friday I'm in Love. I'm just, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, no, seriously. But and, and, and again, I can see why, though, that they might want to look into a reboot because the sequel potential for The Crow is in and of itself infinite because the idea behind the crow is that, you know, a tormented soul gets to come back, exact revenge, whatever. And so it can be a different person every time. But also the sequels for the crow were dodgy at best and generally pretty laughable on the whole. Although you could kind of go every other. So like three was three was decent, five was decent, two and four were pretty craptastical. You what you did to me this fire? Yeah. Should have done it, Joe. Huh? Huh? I don't know what you're talking about. I'm talking about this fucking tattoo you gave me. Look at this shit! It's a crow. You got right, it's a crow. Did I ask you for a fucking bird on my chest? I was I? going from the fucking design that you gave me. Stop it! Stop it! 
What's it gonna be, hero? Ready to kiss your faggot ass goodbye? I think you're shitting yourself. You're so goddamn ready. Fuck you! Which one was City of Angels? Because that's the only that was... sequel I know of. Because I think Curse and Dunst is in it, I think. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that is the second one, Crow. City of Angels. Yeah, it's Crow. Uh, it's the sequel. That okay, the first so one. the only other one I know is not a good no, one. It was a crappy apparently. one. Yeah, that's a crappy one. Yeah. Crappy one. So, well, what are you going to do? Anyway, well, that was that was fun. But what do you have for us, sir? All right, first up, this is old news, but I think it's something worth mentioning before we jump into a piece of news that that touches on something that's very controversial and all over the entertainment news cycle as of now. But uh, first off, this was published at thehollandreporter.com on October 27th. John Molo, Oscar-winning Star Wars costume designer, dies at 86. I heard nothing about his passing until I was on The Hot Reporter looking up something and I came across this article. So, honestly, I think it's worth mentioning. Um, the article here, written by Rhett Bartlett, says this. The Londoner received a second Academy Award for Gandhi and was a huge influence on Ridley Scott's Alien franchise. John Molo, the costume designer who brought to life Ralphie McQuarrie in George Lucas's conceptual vision for Star Wars, has died. He was 86. His death was reported in the Times of London. A military history expert, Molo had never seen a science fiction film before, agreeing to meet with Lucas, who was planning his third feature after his Oscar-nominated American Graffiti, saying, quote, We discussed a few concepts when I joined the team, and George had a clear vision of what he was looking for. He liked the idea of the baddies having a fascist look about them, with the heroes reflecting the look of heroes of the American Wild West, end quote. Molo told StarWarsHelmets.com, with McQuarrie's sketches in a meager budget of 1173 bucks. For one costume, the London-born Molo began shaping and fine-tuning Darth Vader's image through his knowledge of World War I trench armor and Nazi helmets, ultimately creating the look of one of cinema's most memorable villains. His military influence is also visible in the regalia worn by the crew of the Death Star. Star Wars went on to become the highest-grossing film of 1997 and received 10 Oscar nominations and a Special Achievement Award. Molo won for Best Costume Design. Quote, As you see, the costumes from Star Wars are really not so much costumes as a bit of plumbing and general automobile engineering, end quote, he said upon receiving his Oscar, flanked by his creations of Darth Vader, Princess Leia, and Stormtroopers. Uh, the article does go on from there. He talks about being an advisor on Nicholas and Alexandra, as well as Barry Lyndon. So yeah, so I thought that was definitely worth mentioning, uh, because next up, via Variety.com, an article published on November 10th, written by Brett Lang, replacing Kevin Spacey on all the money in the world will cost millions. I believe we all know what is going on. I don't know if we really need to go into too much detail of why this is a big deal and why Kevin Spacey is being replaced. I'm sure you can read any article that is on the front page of any other entertainment news website because you will be able to find that information there. But this article, again, 
replacing Kevin Spacey on all the money in the world will cost millions, says this. Ridley Scott's decision to fire embattled actor Kevin Spacey and replace him with Christopher Plummer comes at a financial risk and carries a significant price tag as the director races to finish all the money in the world ahead of its planned December 22nd release date. It's an unprecedented move, one that's full of logistical challenges as well as added unexpected costs for reshoots, post-production, and the creation of new marketing materials. Some marketers estimate that the creation of new trailers, posters, in-theater standees, and additional advertising campaigns could total millions once rush fees and takedowns costs are added up. Despite the headaches and hit to the wallet, it's a step that Scott and the film's financiers, Imperative Entertainment, deemed necessary in the wake of several sexual assault and harassment allegations against Spacey, who plays billionaire J. Paul Getty in the picture. They felt that continuing on the project with Spacey's name above the title would cloud its Oscar hopes and doom its commercial prospects. As it is, all the money in the world, which centers on the kidnapping of Getty's grandson, is a difficult sell in a film that needs critical goodwill if it's going to succeed. Though Sony and Imperative toyed with moving the picture to 2018, they are eager to have it debut in advance of Danny Boyle's Trust, an FX series that also revolves around the Getty kidnapping and airs in January. The article does go on from there for quite a bit more. It talks more about the budget. Um, they're bringing in, of course, Christopher Plummer to replace Kevin Spacey. Originally, I thought this was pretty interesting. Originally, Christopher Plummer was Ridley Scott's first choice to play John Getty, to play Getty. But the studio was like, no, we need a higher caliber actor. And so that is why Kevin Spacey was cast. But what's great is that they're able to bring in Christopher Plummer, who's not going to need as much makeup or prosthetics because he already kind of looks like the guy, which is probably why Ridley Scott wanted him to play it. It's, it's pretty interesting. Matt, what do you think about all this, about Christopher Plummer coming in, about Ridley Scott wanting to shoot all of the scenes in two weeks in time for its December 22nd release and all this money that they're putting into the film? Do you think it's worth it? To be honest, I don't know. It sounds pretty much like the cost-benefit analysis is just that instead of throwing good money after bad, it would just be cheaper to go ahead and use Christopher Plummer and you know have a crunch now and still get the movie out and potentially do very well. Christopher Plummer is no slouch when it comes to, when it when it comes to the work that he's done. At the same time, they're also fighting against the clock. Uh, for, as they mentioned, for the other series that's coming and award season and everything else. So I guess in their minds, it must be worth it. So the rest of the project must also be strong enough that they're willing to, to go these extra steps in, in order to get something out there. I'm curious to see what the end product will be because they think it's worth it. It remains to be seen, though, whether or not the, the rush will prove to be fatal regardless. And then not only will they have lost all the money, but they'll have lost the additional money that they spent scrambling to replace this stuff. Um, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of torn. 
because when it comes to things like what's been happening with Kevin Spacey, uh, obviously, uh, you know, with Weinstein and now, uh, just over the weekend, everything's come to light through New York Times, uh, regarding Louis C.K. Um, like, I get it. We don't want to send a message that it's okay to do the things that they've done. But at the same time, there is more than, there, there are more than just the one person involved. There are, you know, tons of other actors, actresses, uh, production, the crews, all these other people who have invested a lot of their time and effort. Uh, studios have expended a lot of money on these things. And so it's kind of like, I would like to see these projects come to fruition, um, with a delay, without a delay, it doesn't matter. Not so much because I, I want it to be okay that these, that these people did bad things, but because the fact that they're good at their job will then salvage the rest of the project so that all of these other people will not have done everything for nothing. And do we, do we, you know, continue to support their fame and their celebrity and allow them a pass? No. Uh, I think that, um, they definitely need to atone for what they've done and what that atonement should be. Well, you know, only time will tell. But to merely just rip everything away and just destroy everything that these people have done and ruin the potential for all of the things that they had ongoing, well, that I don't know that that's necessarily the answer either. Um, so I will at least, I guess at the end of the day, I will at least be curious to see how this all turns out, and I hope that the, um, Christopher Plummer's work is well-received. My only concern is them rushing. Exactly. But I think the movie would be perceived better with Kevin Spacey not in the movie. Um, no, and again, again, I and this is not a defense of what Kevin Spacey right. has done. It, it and and I want to be a hundred percent clear about that. Uh, it's not to support him, right? It's okay. It's kind of like this. This is the best analogy that I have. Let's say that you know somebody who's an asshole. Okay, complete jerk horrible human being all right but damn it they're just a really good cashier okay um do we no longer ever go to do we completely and, and we'll just say they work at department store x all right so do we now forever and ever never shop at department store x ever again because this one guy is an asshole well the majority of people would say no and that's kind of where I'm at on this. It's not about glorifying what Spacey has done or saying that it's okay. Um, I'm just saying that the things that are already done, things that are already in the can, um, projects that have gone into post-production, let that stuff come out um, not because we want to make it okay, but because we want to say, we, we don't want to punish everyone else by proxy, right? So change the, 
you change the marketing campaign so that Kevin Spacey is no longer on the posters. He's not going to be in any of the ads. Um, you know, none of the trailers would feature him. But then, of course, you'll just see the character on screen when you go to see the movie. Something like that. I realize that's not ideal. I'm just, you know, it just really sucks that there are a lot of people like the entirety of season six of House of Cards is, is gone. Right. So all these people have literally just lost everything. And it's things like that, right? Um, the Vidal flick that Netflix was doing, fuck it, done. Oh, the, that, that was it. the next Kevin Spacey deal, right? With yeah. Netflix. Yeah, and it, it was done. It was done. So, and they just said, fuck it, we're done. I mean, it's like all these people, like no one's ever going to get to see this stuff. And again, cannot cannot stress enough. It's not that I want to glorify or make it that it's okay. I just don't want to see... All these other people suffer. Right. That's kind of the worst of it. And so. what, that was kind of the big reason why they decided to, to move forward with reshoots with Christopher Plummer. Because Ridley Scott didn't want all this negativity over this movie. And he didn't want that to reflect on the box office. Because if the movie doesn't do well, sure. and th- then th- then that reflects badly on everybody else who worked on the movie. Ag- agreed. And, yeah. and that's, yeah, and that's why I said, you know, way at the beginning and here we are all again. <laughs> I guess I've talked in circles for like six <laughs> minutes now. I'm sorry. No, but I mean, and that's why I said I'm, I'm definitely interested in seeing how it turns out. Mm-hmm. But like you, I am concerned that the rush job will make it, will make it worse. Again, that was via variety.com, the article that I read a little bit of. Replacing Kevin Spacey on all the money in the world will cost millions. But it does go into more detail about the insurance aspects. A lot of people were wondering, Doesn't insurance cover this? Nope, it does not. But apparently there is a type of insurance called disgrace coverage, which apparently this movie didn't have. But going forward, going forward, I'm sure they will. Do check it out. It's a very interesting thing that's still developing now. Let us know what you think. I think this is pretty fascinating. Right on. Same here. All right, well then let's go ahead and get to the movies. What do you say, sir? Let's do it. Here we go, folks. It's... All right, and this week's movie is 2017's Murder on the Orient Express. You know, there is something about a tangle of strangers pressed together for days with nothing in common but the need to go from one place to another and never see each other again. Ah! I see evil on this train. A passenger has died. So they got him after all. You assume he was killed? No, 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 not. Well, he was in perfectly good health. He, He had his enemies. Indeed, he was murdered. God, murder here. God rest his soul. Someone was rummaging around my cabin in the middle of the night. No one would listen to me. If there was a murderer... What is going on? Then there was a murderer. The murderer is with us. And every one of you is a suspect. And who are you? My name is Hercule Poirot, and I am probably the greatest detective in the world.
All right. It is, of course, a 2017 American mystery drama films directed by Kenneth Branagh, uh, with a screenplay by Michael Green. This is, of course, based on the 1934 novel of the same name by Agatha Christie. And what we have here is, um, Kenneth Branagh, it, who's also, as I just mentioned, the director, um, it play, plays the famous Belgian detective, Hercule Poirot. Um, he is this super sleuth, um, and he is finds he finds himself on a train that he's barely able to get on himself. Um, someone asks him to uh, says, "Hey, look, I want to hire you to protect me because I think there are people on this train who are trying to kill me." Uh, unfortunately for the guy who wants to hire who, who wants to hire. Poirot, um, he's kind of a dick, so Poirot is like, nah, I'm good, thanks. And then, of course, the guy ends up dead. And now, Hercule Poirot, he has to solve the mystery. So, here's, here's the thing. The movie is very, very stylishly shot. If there is one thing that we can say that Kenneth Brown knows how to do, is he knows how to coordinate with a cinematographer so that each shot, every selection, is exactly what the period is calling for. So he understands how to draw everything out of the narrative, from costuming to the lighting to all of these things. But... The problem is, is that the story he's working with is literally 80 fucking three years old. And we have moved so far beyond the style of writing and the way that mysteries and murder mysteries are resolved and given to us and consumed that even despite Brano's talent, both in front of and behind the camera, there's just there's only so much he can do. And he had a really good idea, uh, and you can see it in the screenplay, is that we we shift the focus from the we, we shift the focus from the people on the train, right? All of the suspects, all right? The suspects who are, you know, Penelope Cruz, Willem Dafoe, Judy Dench, uh, Josh Gad, uh, Derek Jacoby, Leslie Odom Jr., Michelle Pfeiffer, Daisy Ridley, right? Um, he... So the shift goes from the suspects to... Poirot, so that you can get into his head and you can see things as the super sleuth sees them. But the problem is, is that the book wasn't designed for that. And so when you make this tonal shift, you've got to give him, you've got to give the character something to, lots of things to really work with. And that's not there. So instead of having this super sleuth really have to shuffle through all the myriad details and clues to come up with this super stunning finale. What we have is a guy who just 
is like the smartest guy in the room for the sake of being the smartest guy in the room with a bunch of flat characters acted well that all of the all of the actors and actresses involved do a great job it's just that the characters themselves come out flat because the focus is shifted to Poirot not to mention that there this is kind of like the oldest this is one of the, quote, oldest tricks in the book. I'm going to stop right here for just a second so that I can give you my score. My score on this ekes in at a three out of five. I mean, it's a likable movie mainly because I like the cast. I like, uh, I like the director and I like the look, but I, I can't give it any more than that because of the following, which is the spoiler that I'm about to give. This is like the original trick of the old style of writing where clues are withheld and information is withheld for the sake of making the detective smarter than the reader. Now, in 1934, the only person that they had to really build off of in this regard outside of the very, very early work of Edgar Allan Poe is, of course... Arthur Conan Doyle. But even Arthur, but even Arthur Conan Doyle with Sherlock Holmes invented characters or just gave Holmes the turn of phrase that he needed. Ah, but because I knew of this one thing, right, you know, and make him smarter than everybody else. People didn't have that level of sophistication yet because they were, they were the first. Agatha Christie is doing the same thing, and we create a scenario in which literally everybody did it. That's right, folks. It's the bonus third ending to Clue. Everybody did it. And especially knowing this going in, you're going to need a way to really build up to this in such a fashion that it makes it worth it for the payoff. And when you shift the focus to Poirot and give flat characters as suspects, Despite them being well acted, there's no benefit. There's no real payoff. So I like the look. I like the actors. I like the, I like Kenneth Branagh, but this movie, while likable, still falls a little flat. Three out of five. I know your mustache. From the papers. You're the detective. Hercules Poirot? Hercule Poirot. I do not slay the lions. <clears throat> Mary Debenham, monsieur. I'll forget a name, but never a face. Not yours, anyway. You come from Baghdad? It's true. No detail escapes his notice. Your ticket? Ah. I might also ask you if you enjoyed your time there as a governess. The chalk on your sleeve and the geography of primer. A governess or a cartographer? <laughs> I made my gamble. I always begin them with geography and monster them till they have the world down cold. They may get lost in life, but I'll be damned if they don't know where they are. What do you got there, Tim? I agree completely. I really don't have too much to add. This movie left me frustrated because I thought it started, it began nicely. The whole movie shot in 65 millimeter. I think the entire movie was shot in 65mm. So it has this cool, old-fashioned feel and look to it. 
Uh, the pacing takes its time, but the editing is still brisk, and how Kenneth Branagh plays the character, it's still brisk, it's funny, you know, he has this charm to him that's that's nearing infectious, I suppose. Until the murder happens, and he begins questioning people. And this is what the 1974 movie did right. I never read the book. I've seen, I don't think I've even seen half the adaptations of this book. But what I really liked about the 1974 movie, directed by Sidney Lumet, and Albert Finney played the inspector, is that they basically gave you the murder at the beginning of the movie. They showed you the basic murder of the film, the Armstrong child abduction and then murder. So you know going into the movie that something happened. And I think that was one of the main faults with Kenneth Branagh's film because after taking the time to show you his interrogations of each person one by one, one right after another, he then goes into the whole story of the Armstrong family. And all of that is produced the exact same way, with the exact same pace. There's nothing really fun about it. There's nothing really super entertaining or stylish about it. I mean, there's only so much of the beautiful CGI landscape of the train and the snow and the, the dire situation that the train is at stranded on top of that really narrow bridge you know there's only so much of that you can rely on to build up suspense to keep that intrigue going so you need more of the character and then also when it comes to characters i thought the movie was expertly cast i liked it michelle pfeiffer i love michelle pfeiffer but i think i i don't think she was necessarily trying too hard i think she was trying not to be a caricature. It just seemed like she was trying to not overly play the character up. So it kind of looked a little awkward or felt a little awkward, which doesn't help the ending whatsoever. The movie contrives the sentimentality at the end. When you had the reveal, the inspector treats it as if it's something very sad and very depressing. And you have the violin music you know, or the fiddle music or, you know, whatever string instrument it is in the bag giving this beautiful, you know, solo number. And it's dep- it's very sad, like, why all these people were compelled to do such a thing, to commit such a crime, a, ho- a horrendous crime, together. But you really aren't ever, as an audience member, you don't ever go down that path to fully understand it, to actually get caught up in it. And that twist and that reveal is presented as, oh, oh, that's how heartbreaking. I hope they make it out. But it's like you're not there. You're not in the same level as all these people emotionally, you know. And on top of it, character-wise, you also have the inspector constantly talking about himself, saying that he's smart, he's an amazing investigator, there is nobody comparable to him. But it's not really ever... I guess, adequately shown for the audience to fully develop that kind of relationship with him. Because at the beginning of the movie, I got this kind of like goofy caricature characteristics from him. Very much like Clouseau. But with Clouseau, you know he's dumb. From the very beginning, he's established as being dumb. Where it seems like they were trying to take their time to 
show you how Kenneth Branagh, how his inspector, I'm not, as you can tell, I'm trying not to ever say his name because I'm not going to say it correctly. They're trying to give you layers of his character when really you don't need all those layers. You could just have him doing this stuff because Kenneth Branagh is such a great actor through his performance and through like little characteristics and stuff. We can see him becoming this very smart and brilliant detective or investigator, inspector, whatever he is. But there's a lot of issues with this film. Overall, though, I was entertained by it. Three out of five as well. Well, hello. Eyes linger any longer, I'll have to charge rent. I'll pay. Mm. Have another drink. Are you insulted? <laughs> Disappointed. Some men have a good look. All they have to do is keep their mouth shut, and they can take home any prize they want. Still, the mouth opens. All right, three out of five. All right, well, that's three out of five all the way across. I wanted to ask you, they left the ending open to a potential sequel. I mean, not a Murder on the Orient Express sequel, but the further adventures of Kenneth Branagh as Hercule Perro. Maybe? Hercule <laughs> Poirot. Poirot. Hey, I would like to buy a hamburger. <laughs> would you like to see Kenneth Branagh continue playing the character in another adaptation? Kind of no, because I like his direction on the whole. I think he's a good director, but I don't like the way he's directed himself here. And he would need to either direct someone else as Poirot, Poirot, or he would have to let someone else be a director. And I'm not sure where I want to go with that. So I, I guess in, in, in the event that he was not the director and, or at least he learned from this and toned it down on making Poirot the star of the show, as it were, like he needs to, you know, not hog the stage, I guess, so much would be the simplest way to put it. Then, I, then yes, I guess I would be okay with another one. Cool. I'd have to say the same. And that is going to bring us to the end of the movies for this week. Next week's movie is going to be the Netflix uh, family movie, as I said. <laughs> First, they killed my father. Yes, the Angelina Jolie flick uh, about Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge incidents. Um and without further ado, I guess we're going to move on to the spiel, are we not, sir? Yeah, it's like saying for Easter, like a good Easter movie is Watership Down. Yeah. <laughs> spiel on. Is there something wrong with the food? No, the food was excellent. Perhaps you're not happy with the service? No, no, no complaints. It's just that we have to go. I'm having rather a heavy period. And we have a train to catch. Yes, yes, of course, we have a train to catch, and I don't want to start bleeding all over the seats. <laughs> all right. Well, 
Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at NitTwit12345. You can, go, of course, climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio as well as track us down on the old SoundCloud. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Daisy Ridley, I get to say this. It's one thing for other people to see potential in you and it's quite another for you to understand that and see it in yourself take care cinephiles and we'll talk at you again next week madam perhaps we should be going oh very well monsieur thank you so much so nice to see you and i hope very much we will see you again very soon au revoir monsieur Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>